0: There is a perception, and I may also have held this perception that it's kind of fun, right? Because we're making art, we're being creative, you know, we're creating this play space for something new to appear that will be useful for you, but it's incredibly hard. It's really hard to hear so many painful stories, but it's particularly hard to know that people have experienced such awful things. And... The magnitude of that, like how many people have, because I'm just one therapist and I know everybody who does
1: this work has that experience. This is Professional Confessionals. We're joined today by founding partner and director of programs at New York Creative Arts Therapist Drina Fagan. Drina is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed creative arts therapist. Thank you so much for joining us, Drina. I'm very excited to be here. Let's dive right in. Tell us about your professional journey. Where did you go to college? What did you study? And what did you plan to pursue?
0: I went to college at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and I was pursuing a degree in graphic design. I went there because in 1985, when I graduated from high school. It was one of the better state schools for art and marketing, and I didn't know which department I was going to be in, and I figured it was a big enough school that I could decide when I got there. So I studied in the fine arts department, and then I got my bachelor's in graphic design, and my plan was to be an art director in advertising.
1: Is that what you ended up doing? Yes, that's
0: exactly what I ended up doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I was one of those people who was very clear about what I wanted to do when I was 14 years old. And I would go to these career fairs and meet people and I would talk to, I was very proactive about this. Um, Nobody in my family did this for a living, so I didn't really know that much about it. So I tried to learn as much as I could. And I was an artist. I liked to draw and I was always the person who made the posters for homecoming and the invitation for prom. And I was the yearbook editor. So it seemed like a natural fit, possibly a way to make money. I was very practical. I didn't want to be an artist, artist. I was like, oh, that would be irresponsible. I don't necessarily believe that now, but that was my mindset back then. Yeah. So I went right for what I wanted and I did it for a while, but I as my introduction belied, I am not still doing it. So
1: that's interesting. So two questions for you. Did your parents influence your choice at all? No. No? No Mm -mm. input. They said, Drina, do whatever you want.
0: Yeah. The only person I recall, two people I recall trying to influence my decision. One was an English teacher who was disappointed that I was going to a public university and disappointed that I was going to study art. So I was academically strong in all areas, so I really could have done anything. And so that that bothered her. And I still think about Mrs. Russell and her opinion about that you know, she was an excellent she was my AP English teacher and she was she was amazing, but that's what I wanted to do. And I didn't get any pushback from my parents. so I think that probably might have shaped it had they had feelings about that, but they were my dad always said, you know, do what you love love what you do. And um, so I took that fully to heart, like they were accepting of that. And then the other person, interestingly enough, was when I was in college, my freshman year, I took economics. So I went to a big university, not an art school, because I did like all those other things, even though I wasn't going to be them. I guess I did really well in my economics 101 class, which was like 500 people at the University of Florida. But I think I did really well. They actually reached out to me to try to get me to change my major. Which is like super awesome. (laughs) I felt like so smart and wonderful and like, wow, the economics department wants me. And I was like, and I, you know, and I was like, well, no, I'm going to major in art. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if they're telling that story somewhere.
2: Is art the opposite of economics? It, it
0: kind of feels like it is. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm somewhere completely different than either of those. So if it was a triangle or however many sides to the shape of career choices, you know, now I'm in a helping profession. So they all feel very different. Mm-hmm. So what led to the shift? Well, I, so I worked in advertising. I moved to Los Angeles from Florida and I, and I worked in advertising for about seven years And it actually precipitated my decision. Uh, Well, I turned 30 and I wasn't settled down and I didn't have a a long term boyfriend or at that moment. And uh, I decided I wanted to before life caught up with me in some other way, I decided to take a trip around the world. So I was freelancing at that point, and pretty well established, like I was doing fine, like I was doing fine as in my career in LA, and I had good connections. So I quit my job or stopped freelancing, loaned my car to a friend to make the uh, car payments, put all my stuff in storage, and I bought a round the world ticket. So at 30 years old, I decided to go and see the world.
1: Wow, what an adventure.
0: Yes, and I had never left the United States before. So it seemed really important. And then now in retrospect, it was super important. <laughs> so while I was away, which was I did it was going to do it for 12 months, I made it nine months. That's pretty good. And uh, when I came back, everything about L.A. and commercialism and advertising, like I just suddenly it didn't seem to align with who I was and i didn't know what did align with it i just knew that wasn't it that was just now how i made my living and i wasn't sure i wanted to do it anymore so i did continue to do it though cuz i had to make a living mm-hmm. <laughs> so i freelanced and i moved around but i i learned about art therapy while i was on my trip i met this young girl so i was 30 and she was 23 and she was going to study art therapy in the uk and i had never heard of it and so i was super curious so when i got back to the us and i continued to freelance as a graphic designer, I started to investigate it and I decided maybe I would like to pursue it. So
1: what was the internal shift that led you to no longer being certain that you were a match with your then current profession? I I
0: think it was twofold on my trip. So nine months is a long time to be out of your regular life. And the first month and a half so I started in the South Pacific. So I was in New Zealand and Australia. And the first month and a half, I found that, you know, I'd be at these hostels and talking to people. And I was generally one of the older people. People don't wait till 30 usually to do the backpacking around the world. It's me and all the 21-year-old, 19-year-old Israelis and Australians, <laughs> which was pretty awesome, actually. At Germans, too. So when people would ask me about myself for about the first month, I didn't know what else to say except what I did. And I realized nobody else was doing that. Nobody else was saying, my name is Mark, and I'm an engineer. Like nobody was saying what they did as their way of identifying themselves. And so, you know, by the third month, or, you know, wherever far into the trip, I I realized that I wasn't that anymore, because now I was traveling that job, I didn't have that job, I wasn't doing that job, that job wasn't defining me anymore. And then so who was I? And what what did I like to do? And what did I believe in? And I didn't try to find that answer. I wasn't on like a who am I journey. I just sort of was like shedding the fact that who you are is what you do, Mm -hmm. purely what you do. So when I did get back to the US, I realized that there were parts of my job that did not align with who I felt like I was. I wasn't someone who bought things. I'm not a big shopper. I don't consume a lot. I have the least amount of shoes of any woman in LA I'm sure mm-hmm. and I it was con- it sort of didn't match I was like my whole job is to sell things to people which not all graphic designers that has to be your job but my particular category in advertising was selling things so it that just felt like such a misalignment that I didn't really want to do it anymore and then just the culture shock of being back in A place where there's so much, there's everything. And I had been to places where there was nothing and people seemed so happy. Um, so there was some kind of shift there too, where like, you know, I'm in this village in Thailand where the beach is beautiful and the food is great. Of course, all those things, but like, there's kind of nothing else here and everybody is smiling. And I don't think they're just smiling to make the tourists happy, you know, like, so So those, those were the, those were the, those were the things. So I came back and, and I actually ended up needing to abandon LA in some way. So I took a freelance job in Vermont. I was like, that'll be different. And, and that was really, that really changed my view of things too. So I was in, I mean, Vermont's another, well, we're in New York, but when you're from Florida and you've lived in LA, Vermont might as well be another country. So at what point did you start to make the shift into your current profession? So then I was in Vermont for a bit and surviving my first winter ever in my whole life at 31 (laughs) years old. And then we would that's close enough to New York that we were visiting New York City and I had been researching art therapy master's programs. So I was like, well, you know what? I'm not really working now. I'm just sort of like I'm just cobbling together things, which when you are as a graphic designer, then and even now, I will always be able to have some kind of work someone always needs design services in some capacity. So that's kind of a wonderful thing I have in my, my back pocket always is like, if you need a newsletter, I can typeset it for you. So I was looking at programs and we were going to New York a lot. And I was like, well, you know, what, what the heck I should apply to a school in New York and move to New York. Like this is perfect. I mean, I'm, I have no, no obligation anywhere. So it was really very free too. Like I wasn't I was in. I was financially independent in that I was paying my own way. All the work I was doing, I was paying my own way. I was even substitute school teaching in Vermont a bit, like just it was kind of any interesting thing I could find. And yeah, so I applied and I got into Pratt in Brooklyn, and I moved to New York City two weeks before school started in nineteen ninety nine. I had no idea what I was getting myself into.
1: Student housing or an apartment? Oh, no, I was 32.
0: No. Uh, yeah, an apartment. They don't offer, they don't offer <laughs> student housing to 32? I 32 don't know, Maybe. <laughs> I, didn't, you, I didn't want... You aged out? I, I, was, I did not even explore student housing. <laughs> I didn't move to New York to live in student housing. Um, uh, no, I actually... Then my two roommate, One of my roommate in Vermont and one of her friends decided that moving to New York sounded really awesome. So they both managed to get themselves jobs in their specific fields they worked in really easily... And so we all got an apartment together, uh, split a two-bedroom apartment with three of us on the Upper West Side. Yeah. So like a whole new thing, like a literally
1: a whole new chapter. So then you, you commuted and you, you went to Pratt. And then after how long of the program? It's two years. Master's programs in mental health or therapy kinds of degrees
0: are generally two years. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was a two-year intensive program. And my work was was my internships. You have to do field work. So I was working in a pretty difficult setting in deep and sort of a scary part of Brooklyn, East New York. It's not as scary anymore. You know, they just kind of throw you right in the pool and they're like teaching you about art therapy while you're, you know, working with these kids with severe emotional disturbances and mental illness. They were teenagers, but I really loved it. Like I was like, this is, I don't have no idea what I'm doing, but we're making art and these kids are opening up to me. And I felt like I was in the right place and I didn't know I would like it that much. It was really kind of a whim. I was like, I don't really know what to do. This sounds kind of interesting. Why not? And then once I got into it, I discovered that I really enjoyed it and I felt like I might actually be good at it.
2: It must have been very satisfying when you first saw that this type of therapy could produce positive results.
0: Yeah, particularly for that for the people I was interested in working with at that time, which were generally was with teenagers and teenagers at risk or teenagers who'd been in trouble with the criminal justice system, like, or, you know, just kind of were all alone. Like, it was the access to talking about your what's going on with you and opening up to someone by having the art kind of as the mediator. So you don't have to directly... Interact with that adult who seems to be just trying to like get in your head. They always thought we we're trying to get in their head. I'm like, I don't need to get in your head. You need to get in your head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, you're finding a way to facilitate that. Plus, it was just a lot of growth for me to have these really intimate relationships with people uh, that was different from any kind of intimate relationship I'd ever had. So that felt good to me too. So it wasn't just that they were getting something out of it. I mean, I have to admit that I was getting something out of it as well.
1: What about your personality makes this a good fit for you? What combination of attributes? I'm not really sure. I, I think
0: it's only in the last five years that I've really fully integrated that this is who, what I do. I'm not sure that my, if any of my clients are listening, they're going to be happy to hear that. But um, uh, that I don't feel like my personality is a therapist's personality whatever that means, right? Whatever our associations are to, you know, like Dr. Melfi on Sopranos or whatever place you've seen it. And I hadn't even had that much exposure to therapists. So there would just sort of be these moments where I would think, what is it about me that's making this person feel safe and comfortable? I mean, obviously I've gone to school. I went to school again and got another master's degree. So I know what I'm doing. So there's that part. But to answer your question about what parts of my personality I'm not entirely clear because I do like to be the center of attention. Sometimes I like teaching, which means you're kind of on stage. So there's, you know, when you're, when you're in the role and you're listening to someone and you're helping them in a therapeutic way, you're not the center of attention. And so it's, I think I just, maybe I haven't even really figured this out, but I think the parts of my personality are that I do really deeply care about a lot of things. And when I sit with somebody one on one, and we have that intimacy, and they're talking to me, I feel so privileged to listen to their story. And if all I'm doing is just supporting them in that story and not offering more than that, which is often plenty, that I can do that. And that I like it. Like I like that I like hearing your story. And I like finding something about every single person that I appreciate, like I can honestly say that I like everyone I work with. And in the world at large, maybe they're not liked. Like that's, you know, kind of part of that dynamic. And so I guess part of my personality is to see the good in people. That sounds right.
1: Oh, and you also have a really easygoing way about you and like a calming presence. And you're just very accepting. I mean, that's my experience of you anyway. Thank you. I have had other
0: people tell me that and it is i think this is not an unusual experience i think other people have this experience of themselves and how other people observe them because i i don't i feel calm and easygoing but i don't i don't see that part that makes it seem like i would be easy to talk to <laughs> and so i mean i know it's in me because i've been doing it now for 20 years but but it's still it still feels kind of foreign
2: well do you put yourself in a certain frame of mind are you acting a certain way? Do you adjust your behavior when you're having a session?
0: Yeah, good question. I'm um, mostly no, I'm not. I am me in the session, but I am not the focus of the session. So that's the difference. That's the difference that I suppose when you say that's how you experience me, because I feel like when I encounter someone socially, I'm going to be more, you know, sort of like, hey, look at me versus in that session, I'm going to be pulled back and and be present for somebody else fully, so. But maybe I'm underestimating myself in, in in my interactions socially as well.
2: In a way, we're we're doing that what you're speaking about in some aspects of, of that right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. It's t- it's listening, asking a question, and then listening, and then not telling me how to answer it, or telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. Just telling her what to do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Suggesting. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. Is there anything that surprised you about being a therapist? Yes, several things.
0: The, the main thing that surprised me, especially as an art therapist, I mean, I'm a social worker too, but there is a perception and I may also have held this perception that it's kind of fun, right? Because we're making art, we're being creative, you know, we're creating this play space for something new to appear that will be useful for you. But it's incredibly hard. It's really hard to hear so many painful stories. But it's particularly hard to know that there's so many people have experienced such awful things. And The magnitude of that, like how many people have, because I'm just one therapist and I know everybody who does this work has that experience. So, so that surprised me that it would be so emotionally taxing. But then the flip side is I'm also surprised by how much I learn from my clients and how much so in turn, how, what I receive from it. And you know, keeping in mind that's a secondary thing, that's not my primary agenda, but but watching how somebody else untangles the, the problem that they're facing without me telling them what to do, which is really not my job, then like hearing them say that and going, well, that's a, that's a great idea, <laughs> right? Like that, like it is so expansive. So that surprises me too. I didn't
1: know that that would happen. Any misconceptions that you'd like to dispel? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe yes. one yeah. or two. <laughs> well, I
0: think the, you know, the art therapy one I guess is the one I'll I'll go I'll go for that one first. You know, the assumption again that it is fun. If I tell people at a party that I'm an art therapist, they often say, "Oh, that sounds great. You must love kids." And that sounds so fun. And so I I don't work with kids very much. I do work with kids sometimes. I worked with them more in earlier in my career I mostly work with adults and teenagers so that's already not how it is Uh, and then the fun part right like it's creative and it's interesting and it's dynamic I wouldn't say it's fun though you know and uh, and then also the perception that it's not a legitimate therapy that's a big one I think it's also it's maybe more problematic within the field of mental health than outside I think There's a lot of silos in mental health, the marriage and family therapists and the art therapists and the psychologists and the psychiatrists, and they all are like holding their territory. But really, the lines are so blurry between what all of us do. And we just have our individual ways of offering people an opportunity to do it the way they want to do it. Um, And I think, you know, that's sort of the mission of the company that I that I co-own is that we want to provide a space for people who want this kind of therapy so that they can have it. So if you know that this will fit you and that you will probably make better progress if it's in a creative venue with people who understand creative processes, then you should be able to choose that.
2: Do you come across patients that are true artists that produce wonderful works?
0: Yeah, we are based in Brooklyn. So I've worked with a couple of artists who are professional, established, you know, have art in galleries, artists. So they make a living with their art. And then with my we have an affiliation with Pratt. So we would get frequently get art students while they're going to school who are struggling with anxiety or depression. And just the stressors of being in a highly competitive art school. So yeah, we definitely get artists and um, our practice actually has all the creative modalities. Now we have music therapy and drama therapy, dance movement therapy and art therapy. So we, you know, sometimes we'll get an artist, a visual artist who comes in and when they discover we have all those they are like, well, hmm, maybe I'd like to try drama therapy, you know, so they have that, they don't want to go to the thing that's already their area of expertise, but they want to use their creativity to make some personal discoveries in a different way. So that's always nice. But Yeah, we definitely get people who know how to make things.
2: When I first heard of art therapy, I thought of young kids finger painting.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. I'm sure that's what a lot of people think of.
0: People also have the perception from like those detective shows like CSI or I don't know any the names of those shows, but um, uh, where the art therapist will come in and they have a drawing from the child who witnessed a thing and then they're all analyzing it right there, which Mm -hmm. you, by the way, can't really do. That's (laughs) so, yeah. So I think that, you know, there's not a lot of exposure to it for people and it is a natural way to work with kids. So, you know, I'm, I'm not upset that that's what people perceive it to be, but it is so much more than that. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I think it's for me, it's wonderful to discover what it really is. It's, it sounds amazing.
0: Does it make you want to come? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> We're going to sign him up. Yeah. <laughs> Share a little bit more about the other therapies: the the drama, the dance. You, you mentioned something else. Music. Music. What does that entail? I mean, I've never even heard. I mean, I've heard of the art therapy as you know, mm-hmm. visual, but I, I wasn't familiar with the other three. So
0: though all of those therapies are considered creative arts therapies in New York. So we're all licensed under the same license, which is L-C-A-T, licensed creative arts therapist. But we all do have our specific areas of study. And so what we all have in common is that we're bringing the creative process into the therapy space to help dislodge, move, uncover, discover new solutions and insights into the things that are bringing you to therapy in the first place so that that we all have in common and so the difference is in exactly how we do it so the visual art we're making something and then we can step back and take a look at it uh, examine it wonder about it hate it throw it away love it catching a fire whatever right you have this object the other ones on the other hand there is no object to do so they tend to be what are called more embodied therapies so you're going to be really like almost more emotionally somatically living the experience but there's various ways that you can do that. So in drama therapy, you might, which is different from psychodrama, psychodrama where you're actually acting out your own family, like here's a chair, yell at your dad, that drama therapists may do that. But drama therapy is much more about metaphor and creativity than just reenacting and playing out real life scenarios. And that's not to be dismissed that psychodrama is fantastic. It's just that it's, uh, it's a little bit different. So with drama therapy, you might find metaphors or Ways or even scripts like, oh, let's find a play that sort of aligns with the issues you're struggling with and let's read those lines and play those roles, or let's think about the roles you play in your life and what roles do you need to, you know, if you're always playing the role of the victim, what other roles can we practice here that maybe you can then start practicing out in your life? That's a very oversimplified explanation, but the idea is that we're going to get out of our seat and we're actually going to kind of try some things out to see what it feels like to be different. If you're always quiet, what's it going to feel like to yell? You know, again, really oversimplified, but like, how do we shift things? The dance movement therapy is similar in that you're not using your voice. You're using your body to key in and to communicate and to understand. And I feel like I'm not quite as well versed to to give a full, wonderful description of that. But it can be really powerful because it's, it's just you. Like you are telling your story with your own body and there's no distance and there's no protections and there's no defense to kind of guard you. And I feel like music is more like the art music therapy and is also more well known. Have you heard it? Had you heard of that one before? No. Um, yeah. I, I often find that people have heard of music therapy over art therapy. So music therapy can be listening and commentary on listening guided imagery with music where you're. You know, you're listening to music and you're you're having your associations almost like a psychoanalytic kind of thing. They have um, certificates of certifications and lines of study for that. But a lot of times it's songwriting or vocalizing. But using the music, again, as a means to free things up and make discoveries so you can find some solutions.
2: So are these therapeutic improvements based upon self-expression?
0: not necessarily. So we we do work from a reluctant to say medical model, but we do consider what what the diagnosis is, like what somebody's coming in to solve. So someone who's coming in because they're struggling with or newly diagnosed with ADHD versus someone who has a trauma history, like they're an abusive parents, and someone who is having a relationship problem, and someone who's super anxious or depressed, or like so, all of those are so different. So just coming in and expressing yourself through music may not be sufficient. So the the intervention with the creative, whichever creative piece you're choosing, is designed to focus on the thing that needs the attention. So for uh, a very depressed person who maybe holds all their feelings that's exacerbating their depression because they don't know how to let their feelings out then that expressive component that you described might be the ticket like or at least the beginning of the first ticket of a bunch of tickets (laughs) Um, right like like how do we sort of dislodge the things that that are being held but that piece might be contraindicated for someone who's a trauma survivor that we don't want them to just start pouring it all out because that is how they get, they are destabilized from that, because that's what happens in their daily life, everything triggers them, and then everything's pouring out. So, so there's, you know, that's why we go to school for two years, right? It's not simply catharsis, everyone comes in and free dances and paints whatever they want. And, you know, just sings a song, and then they're all better. And I do think maybe that goes back to the misconceptions about it because that all, all that stuff feels great to do, but it's not really specifically targeting the problem that someone's coming in for.
1: Are there any aspects of it that you'd like to change if you could? Yeah, the aspects of the field that I would like
0: to change are, when I mentioned the silos of the different mental health professionals, kind of all being so territorial and it it feels it makes the it makes the mental health system feel particularly splintered um and i think that's super confusing for consumers and it doesn't really help us help each other um so i wish there was more inclusive and accepting you know sort of like the way we treat our clients is not the way we treat each other in the field and i find that very disturbing and it's a reality it's actually a reality it sounds um, so
2: incongruent it's super incongruent is yeah. it caused by competitiveness
0: yeah it's you know and it's like fee structures and with insurance and you we find all sorts of reasons to justify why people are behaving that way also you know we're not mental health isn't heart surgery it's a sort of like we're lower on the totem pole in terms of health professions and then art therapy is, you know, we're like getting even lower on the totem pole. And there's a pecking order. There's an official pecking order. But if you think about even in a hospital, you know, the heart surgeon versus the psychiatrist and then the social worker. And then, you know, so there's so there's a lot of defensiveness in that posturing and those those lines that we pick. And and uh, I think that that's just unfortunate. Mm mm-hmm.
2: Do you find any dubiousness from other professionals about what you do? I mean, these competitive fields, you know, the psychiatrists in traditional settings, I assume that their unfamiliarity and the threat that you might pose just because you're trying to help the same people. Mm -hmm. Perhaps there's a pushback.
0: Yeah, well, I think in the same way that the general public doesn't exactly understand what we do, the mental health professionals that are our colleagues in the world don't understand what we do either. And people don't work very hard to find out if what they believe is true or not. This is a national problem, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So... You know, I do spend. That's something I wish I could change too, because I spend so much time educating other professionals, and it's exhausting. Because it just, it just is. Like I, I have to sort of mount my defense, you know, why you should send them to me and why I know what I'm doing. And but then there's allies in the field, in those other fields too. And they're once they get it, and once they see that we are, as Capable and competent in the areas of our expertise as they are in theirs, then the respect is—it's beautiful. Like it's like it's affirming, and they refer, we cross refer, and it all works great. So, you know, like there's—it's just probably like a reflection of a larger world kind of way that people are not limited to the mental health community. I suppose I hold them to a higher standard, but it's, it's not necessarily fair.
2: <laughs> your particular facet of of therapy though has more correct me if i'm wrong more pioneering going on because it's one of the newest am i correct there
0: um i no i don't think so actually i mean we are newer but there's a lot of really amazing new treatment approaches that are being pioneered and And I'm very interested in them. A lot of them do have creative aspects to them. So maybe they're not specifically creative arts therapies, but they're very creative interventions. Like some really smart people are developing wonderful, effective, and now they're researching them evidence-based approaches to helping people with intractable long-term kinds of problems. So, you know, I mean, I want to say yes, we're the most innovative. I think we're the most innovative in the room. I think when you're coming to the therapy session, like we're, we're open to a lot more surprises and innovation in that immediate moment than maybe others are. But in terms of like the work people are doing in the mental health community, there's a lot of really great stuff happening.
1: Were there any major obstacles you had to overcome? Besides
0: student loans?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's enough. Uh-huh. Um, yeah,
0: there were a couple. Well, one was the career change piece. Mm-hmm. So, the biggest obstacle for me was really around that identity. So, you know, I told you since I was like 14 or 15, I knew I wanted to go into advertising. So, when I decided at 32 not to do it anymore, it was a really big decision. And I felt like I was quitting before I, you know, got to the level. I mean, I did quit before I got to the level I imagined I would get to. Like I really beat myself up, not, I mean, that's an overstatement, but I did always think, ah, you know, like maybe you should have gone a little longer and really hit it big before you switch gears. So, so that felt like an obstacle that probably got in my way a little bit at the beginning. And then, yeah, financially, like I basically was, you know, on the upswing in a career that I was doing well in and was well liked in. And then I said, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And so I started over in a nonprofit as a therapist, that is not in New York City, mm. so is not exactly an even trade. So the financial obstacle, and then I had student loans too.
1: <laughs> and you kind of had to pay your dues again in another field.
0: Yes, I had to pay my dues again. Which, on the one hand, learning the stuff was fine because I appreciated that I didn't know what I was doing and I wanted to learn from people. But on the other hand, you know, I was thirty-four. And my bosses sometimes were much younger. And yeah, so there was sort of a sense of like, what, what,
1: what have I done? (laughs) What am I doing here? Which is why
0: I own my own company now.
1: (laughs) So what is your favorite aspect of your career? What do you find? I'm assuming you find it fulfilling. I think you said you did. (laughs) Maybe. Um, My favorite aspect of the field. So
0: I'm, we haven't talked about this, but I'm not. I'm not just a therapist I do co-own a company mm-hmm. that employs other therapists so and our mission is to bring the creative arts therapies to as many people as possible to access that there's clinics in New York that don't have this like if people are on Medicaid and they want this they have to be in inpatient hospitalized and There's not, I mean, it's changing. It's changing a lot. Like there's a lot more clinics that are willing to hire creative arts therapists, but it's always been the domain of the social workers. So it's really hard to break, you know, we talked, that's sort of all that territorial stuff or not believing that insurance will pay them and all sorts of mythology there. So my favorite aspect of the work is actually being a leader in making this be something that people can have access to. And I I stumbled on that word for a moment just to think if I was really, if I could really say it, but I can really say it, we've been, we are the only standalone practice in New York. And we've been around for 15 years. And we see all the clients that would come to clinics, but we see them in a private setting. And um, I'm very proud of that. And I, it's really important. I feel like that's the most important work in some ways is that I, don't just the clients that I see I'm happy to do the work and to help them but like the bigger picture is that we've created something where a lot more people can get that help and I feel like that's that's the thing I like the best expanding access expanding access and I do really like running a business so that's a completely different other part that's the economics part of my brain I guess mm. right yeah my my partner Nadia Janewski, and I we love running the business
2: what aspects of running it are you speaking of?
0: Well, we're still pretty small. There's only twelve of us, and then we always have interns so that brings us up to about sixteen generally. But planning uh, the financial pieces, the puzzle of like, whoa, space, do we get another office? How do we do this? How do we figure out how to get raises? How do we how do we recruit the best talent? How do we keep the people here happy? How do we live by our own values? So part of running the business is having it be a values-based business where we want to be there. The people who work there want to be there. And and in turn, we're going to do better work for our clients who hopefully also want to be there, but being in therapy is hard. Like no one really wants to be there. Yeah. I mean, that varies. You get attached and sometimes you, right. <laughs> you know, but yeah, all, all of it, like the, the numbers, the planning, the strategizing, the, we thought the ACA was going to be killed. Uh, we like, immediately had to imagine like, okay, well, what are we going to do? Cause that would have, that would have pulled a, uh, at least a third of our business away And so, you know, we didn't, we only panicked for a little while, but we're like, okay, well, whatever. We're going to just like, this is part of running the business. That's fun. is like, we're going to figure it out. Like if, if they, if they pull that, then we'll figure it out. And so it's still creative, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, it's still, it's still being creative and uh, responsive.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Proudest moments, biggest disappointments. I think proudest moments are hard, but I'm going to just give an example of one that popped in my head. So I think as proud as I am of what we've built, and I am proud of that, like a particular moment where I felt pride was recently with a client. And so when you're doing this kind of work, there's not a lot of obvious affirmation or reward that comes back to the therapist. And because that's not the client's responsibility to do that, right? Like that's, you're not there to make me feel good about if I'm doing a good job or not. But someone did do that recently, and she made a very specific point of coming back to see me after she had I had referred her to someplace else that was more specialized and what she needed, right? Like every therapist can't do everything. So we have to figure that out. And so we worked together for a little while and then I sent her somewhere else. And then she came back very specifically to say, I couldn't have done it without you. And thank you for getting me to that place that then and, and so I was proud of her, too, because it was a really, really big deal. But then I felt proud, too, because it's nice to know that you have an impact. And there's probably a million little stories like that. But that one was just really meaningful because she literally like made the trip over just to say, I, I want to give you a hug and tell you this. So that was very special. Disappointment. <laughs> well... <laughs> there's actually a lot of disappointments because in the same vein it's really hard work and there's a limit to what i can do i can't make anybody do anything and so there's the disappointments where the investment in the relationship and caring and working so hard and then watching really just sort of it's i guess it's almost like parenting just be careful of that as an analogy but You're you're doing the best you can to offer and support and then ultimately it's up to the person to do what they're going to do and it's hard to watch sometimes when things go badly. So I think there's always a lot of little disappointments but it's just it's disappointment in myself that I couldn't do it. It's not really that I'm disappointed in them. It's that I'm disappointed that I couldn't figure out how to crack that and like get there to be movement into a more healthy
1: pattern or behavior. At the same time, you can lead someone towards a solution, but you can't. You can't force anyone to take action. Yeah, well, so.
0: but I, but my solution isn't always their solution, right? So yeah. that's you know watching it. There is so many landmines. Like you are always watching out for. Like, well, what this is what seems like what you should do, but really they have to come to the solution of what they're going to do. And and sometimes I am wrong. Like actually, the woman who came back to thank me, I thought. I didn't know that, that it was going that well. Like I really thought I like that there was going to be a much, a a different trajectory. So she made all of her choices, but she was uh, suggesting that I had given her the base she needed to make those choices. But yes, I appreciate you offering that. Like, you know, there's only so much we can do, but there is still right. Well, there is, there's only so much we can do. So you just, I guess the disappointment is in recognizing that I can't help everybody.
2: Do you go home with patient problems still running through your head?
0: Not so much anymore. Therapist burnout and vicarious trauma are uh, important topics that I actually do a lot of training and professional training and um, workshops and presentations on. Uh, So in doing that, I've reinforced to myself hundreds of times every time I tell other people how to do it, (laughs) you know, how you have to set healthy boundaries and you have to have gratitude for what you're able to do. And then you have to step away, really recognizing that you're powerless to you're powerless to get people to do other things and you've done the best you can, right? Like, so, you know, there's a high rate of burnout in our field, which maybe explains some of that other competitiveness too. It's like, it's hard to feel effective in mental health. It's really hard. And some people will always be struggling or coping or doing the best they can with their mental health issues. And that will be it. Like that will be their baseline is, Maybe not where they want it to be, but it's just, that's where, that's where we're going to be. So yeah, I don't take it home so much. Sometimes there's occasionally there'll be a new case that's like, maybe it's rolling through the courts and there's abuse and all sorts of things. And it's sort of those like I might carry home or they'll surprise me and show up in a dream. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty good at
1: walking out the door and turning it off. Knowing what you know now, is there anything that you do differently? No didn't think so. What advice would you give someone who is considering a similar path?
0: Go to your own therapy first. It's really important that you know what it's like to sit on the other side. Graduate schools aren't allowed to tell you to go to therapy, but they try to tell you in every way they can legally. (laughs) But it's really important to understand what the experience is like before deciding you're going to be the person doing that work. So that's the Biggest piece of advice I would give. Know what it is before you decide to do it. The second is make sure you have a really good support system, people that you trust, that you can share things with, because that will be the way to mitigate the vicarious trauma and the impact of hearing everybody's stories is knowing you have yourself in a secure place. So those two things go hand in hand. So if you're in your own therapy, then you're reflecting on your own strengths and resilience, and then you have your support system, and then you're kind of ready to be able to do the work. But if you go into the work and it feels like kind of your life is pretty topsy turvy, it's very hard to, to do the work if, like, to meet someone in their topsy turvy while you're in your topsy turvy.
1: That's fascinating. I, I never would have thought of that as being a recommended course of action. See kind of on the front lines what that's like. So. How do you get into this field of creative arts therapy? You have to first get an undergraduate degree in,
0: it doesn't matter that much what you get it in, but you will need prerequisites in psychology and you'll need prerequisites in whatever the creative modality is. A lot of people who go into drama therapy and music therapy, their bachelors were in theater or music specifically, and then they and I suppose art therapy as well I mean that's what I was right I was a graphic designer with fine arts degree and I didn't have any of the psych prerequisites so I actually had to take all of those before I applied to grad school but you don't need to study it in undergrad you can get all sort of gather all the pieces major in what you want to major in but just you you need those core pieces and then the different Modalities require different things. You have to submit an art portfolio for art therapy. You have to, for music therapy, you have to be able to play piano and guitar. Um, Some people don't know how to play both of those, even though they're musicians, they might've been like, you know, they played the flute. And so they have to get themselves caught up and be able to do that. And drama therapy, I think they have an audition for that. And I don't know what dance movement therapy has, but you don't, and this is speaking on the art side, you don't have to be good. You just need to be proficient in all the materials that you would be offering to your clients because it's not just drawing therapy. So like all the clay or sculpture or anything you're going to do, you need to have an understanding of how you can offer that. And I suspect that for drama therapy and music therapy, you you need to have a level of proficiency, but you don't need to be stellar. But you do need to have some of that. in. It. you can't just be like, Oh, you know, I like to doodle. You know, you definitely are going to have to have a sculpture class and a painting class and a drawing class, and then a developmental psych class and a couple of those things. Um, so, and then you have to get a master's degree to do any of them. So that's no place in the U S can you do it without a master's degree. And then you have to get a job. And depending on where you live in New York state is pretty great place to have these degrees you know, the salary potential is not fantastic. uh, But I think that's pretty common in mental health, if you're going to stay in nonprofits, or you're going to work in clinics, or even if you open your own practice, if you decide, like we did that, you're going to accept insurance and be very inclusive and try to, you know, that that's going to cat are capped at what what an insurance company is going to pay you. So you know, you have to be thoughtful that this is really what you want to do. But there's definitely work. I, I met somebody recently, who's, child had just majored in got their master's in music therapy and then they didn't get a job right away and they felt like that meant that they needed to go get another degree. So they went back for their mental health counselor degree and and I was sad to hear that because I was like, well, maybe you just needed to keep going, try a little more,
1: you know because there are there is work. Is there anything that you've always wanted to do or achieve that you haven't yet? Yes so many
0: things actually but i really really want to be a painter yeah and i don't know exactly what that means but i think what it means is i have to paint a lot more <laughs> mm. and like to really produce artwork i make a lot of art all the time i'm famous for being like the fastest artist artist in the wild west here like i i can make i make things in an hour like everything's done in an hour but I really haven't achieved like focused work on significant pieces of art. And I would like to do that one day. What do you mean by significant pieces of art? Like not one hour sketches, like deciding there's a that I have something to say and then I'm going to make a painting about it. And then I'm going to think about what goes in that painting and I'm going to work a lot of hours on it. And, and then I'm going to show it to people. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, I've never done that. I just think that there's a particular part of me that I haven't I haven't accessed and I haven't practiced to be that sort of determined, focused creator of art. And I do really love making things, and so I think that the piece and this is why it feels like it's a third act, right? So graphic designer, art therapist. I think it needs to not be commercially driven. And I am a business person, entrepreneur, kind of by default. And so I think that part has to be removed for me to make things that are meaningful and beautiful or ugly or whatever they're going to supposed to be. And that it's not about selling them and it's not about anything except
1: producing that that work. And I don't know how to do it yet. All right. Thank, thank you. you, Drina.
2: Yes, thank you so much.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.